Chapter Eight of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter Eight. Models. But the girl who sat alone on the victor's side porch that Sunday afternoon had descended into depths of misery that were not possible to her father and mother. They were comforted when they thought of God. Why not leave all to the Helper who has never failed us yet? The father had quoted and then had kissed his wife and smiled cheerfully. But the thought of God did not help Esther. She had never felt farther from him than on this afternoon when, as she told herself bitterly, she had been trying to honor him. The sorrowful truth was that nothing with which Esther Randall had to do satisfied her less and tried her more than did what Faith Farnham called her religion. Faith had spoken plain words to her before that day, all the more stinging because they were true. You live in a little narrow space all hedged about with thou shalt nots or I must nots, and that seems to be all there is of it. This was one of her thrusts, and Esther, recalling it, told herself that it was true. What was the trouble with her? What was the trouble with everybody? Where should she look, now that she was away from home, for people whose religion was a central force in their lives? There, for instance, were the victors, every one of them except the high school girl, members of the church. Esther's lip curled instinctively when she thought of them. Almost across the street from her was the church of their choice, so near that the words of the hymn being at that moment sung in the young people's meeting floated out distinctly on the quiet air. I know I love thee better, Lord, than any earthly joy. How many of those so blithely singing meant that solemn affirmation, or realized that their lips were making it? It is true she had no right to judge, and had small acquaintance with the worshippers. But there were the Victor girls, members of that young people's association. At that moment they were dallying over their piano, two young men who had dropped in a short time before keeping them company, and snatches of various tunes were being tried. Most of them might perhaps be classed under the general title of sacred music, though every now and then a gay little strain from a college song would intrude, and the talk with which it was all interluded was of the lightest and gayest. What would her father and mother think of such Sunday evening doings as that, within a stone's throw of the church to which they had pledged their service? Mrs. Victor came to the side door and looked out, seeing no one, for the twilight had deepened, and Esther had purposely withdrawn into the shadow. Selma followed her mother with a question. Going to church tonight, Mama? No, dear, I think not. One sermon a day from Dr. Cheston is as much as I can digest. Besides, I promised Mrs. Severn that I would run in for a while this evening. Is Mrs. Severn sick? Oh, no, but she is lonesome. The servants all go out, and she is in that great house alone. Mr. Severn doesn't get back until the midnight train, you know. Why don't you take her with you to church? Why, child, what a question! The Severns never go to church, you know. The schoolgirl laughed. That might be a reason for inviting her, one would think, she said. That is, if people believe in church-going. I don't myself. Selma, how do you suppose it makes your mother feel to hear you talk in that reckless way? Well, Mama, you know what I mean. I don't see the use in so much church-going. Honestly, I don't, and I might as well own it. 
I never noticed that it did anybody any good, and I think sermons are dreadfully pokey things. Still, of course, I don't mean anything dreadful. I know I couldn't go tonight if I wanted to ever so much. I've got a horrid algebra lesson to learn. At that moment Mr. Victor appeared, and his daughter assailed him. Are you going to church, Papa? No, daughter, I'm going over to David Warren's. David and I have a little matter of business that we have been trying for several weeks to get time to talk over. Don't wait up for me, Mama. I may be late. Do either of you know where Robert is? I do, said Selma. He has gone to drive with the Hegel boys. Alice and I met them away out on the Morristown Road. Rob swung his hat at us. They were driving so awfully fast that he had no chance to speak. They had that big bay horse who ran away twice last week. Rob will get his neck broken some day, riding after all sorts of horses. I wish Robert wasn't forever running with the Hegel boys, said Mr. Victor, a mixture of anxiety and irritability in his tone. They are the fastest young fellows in town. I don't know what Rob's sisters are about, that they don't try to keep their brother at home on Sunday nights at least. The irrepressible Selma giggled. Papa, they can manage Laura Banks's and Nellie Stewart's brothers better than their own, I guess. At least they don't have any trouble in keeping them with them on Sunday nights. They have been fooling around the piano for over an hour, pretending to sing, but they don't do anything but laugh and talk. I think Jim Stewart is awfully silly. If Esther had needed illustrations with which to reinforce her pessimistic spirit, this Christian household was certainly furnishing them. She tugged miserably at the undertone thought which would beset her. Were there people, that is, many people, who got more out of their religion than she and the victors did? Of course, there were always her father and mother, but then, they were peculiar, everybody thought so. Even in that little country town where they lived, the people recognized them as unlike others. She seemed to hear at the moment the strong nasal accent of Uncle Abram Pratt, Joram's father, giving his opinion. I tell you what, if there was ever a man made that was too good for this earth, I think it is Elder Randall. As for his wife, an angel straight out of heaven couldn't do any better than she does. With both of these statements Esther was in sympathy. There was no use in trying to compare other people with her father and mother. There was Dr. Armitage, the man whom she was privileged to hear preach every Sunday. It was a privilege, one could hear that on all sides. People said he was just the man for a college town, so scholarly, so dignified, and withal such a fine speaker. Even President Morse had pronounced his literary style almost beyond criticism. As a rule, Esther enjoyed listening to his highly polished sentences delivered in a rich oratund voice. If there were times when she was tempted to call his efforts addresses instead of sermons, and to sigh for her father's earnestness and simple directness of style, she knew enough to set it down to homesickness. Dr. Armitage was of course a great preacher, and any girl of sense ought to esteem it a privilege to listen to him. Yet on that Sunday evening, when she was dealing in plain truths, she told herself that Dr. Armitage's sermons did not help her spiritually in the least, and she did not see how they could help anybody except in a literary way. And for herself, since she studied Browning and Shakespeare and Emerson more or less during the week, under competent instructors, why should she need such food on Sunday also? 
What did she need? The Bible? She had been present in the Bible class that morning. It was one of the experiences that had served to spoil her day, and made her out of accord with life in general. Wasn't Professor Langham splendid this morning? Blanche Halstead had said to her. When he indulges in that fine sarcasm of his, I just adore him. He is so keen. His wits flash like polished steel. Esther had replied coldly that she did not consider a Bible class a fit place in which to indulge in sarcasm, nor the Bible a suitable book to level it at. Whereupon Blanche had laughed, the sort of laugh that was unpleasant to hear, and had told her that she wanted the Bible wrapped in pink cotton and laid away on a shelf to be handled occasionally with carefully gloved hands. But for her part, she liked to see it talked about just like any other book, without being trammeled by the superstitions of the past. And that was just what Professor Langham did with it. What he had done for Esther was to make her feel that her father was unscholarly and narrow, altogether too old-fashioned in his views and feelings to rank with educated men of today. It was not so much what the professor said as his manner of saying it that annoyed her. He had almost been flippant over statements that she had been taught to receive with reverence. Throughout the entire class hour she had been conscious, not that she herself was being disturbed by his teachings or inferences, but that they would be offensive to her father and mother, and that therefore she wanted none of them. Curiously enough, this state of feeling increased her annoyance. I am all second-hand, she told herself irritably. It doesn't appear that I have any opinions of my own. They are merely the reflection of what my father and mother think. In reality, the girl was being much more influenced by the, to her, entirely new method of presenting Bible lessons than she supposed. There were times when it seemed to her that the very foundations on which her childish faith had rested were being overturned. This she resented with a fierceness that she herself only half understood. She longed to hold all her ideals, and it not only distressed but angered her that they were being disturbed. Once, in the Bible class, being especially tried, she had boldly challenged the teacher. What is gained, Professor Langham, by undermining one's faith in such statements, since there seems to be nothing better to offer in their place? He had smiled graciously as he replied that she had apparently reached a conclusion which did not seem to him to be tenable, since truth was always a better foundation than falsehood, however pleasantly the latter might be expressed and then had asked, Would not your suggested method be like what Dr. Van Dyke calls a claim to solve the problems of the inner life by suppressing them? The words had stung her, chiefly perhaps because she felt their truth as applied to herself. She had come suddenly into a new atmosphere. A questioning spirit was all about her. Before she had been three months in college, she realized what she had never before felt, that she lived in a doubting age, and, far worse than that, something to be resented and combated to the last, was herself almost among the doubters. Yet it was trivial matters that had helped to bring her, that Sunday afternoon, to such a state of discouragement and gloom. She recognized this, and the very triviality irritated her. It was always so, she told herself. She went around straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Why should she allow herself to be miserable, because, for instance, she had broken a dish. She was not the only one in the world who had ever done such a thing, 
and certainly she had made reparation that would have satisfied any reasonable mortal. If she had to deal with unreasonable ones, she was not to blame for that. Yet it rankled within her, that broken dish, chiefly because it represented failure on her part. She had been sorely tried that Saturday morning. Saturdays were generally hard days. They represented some degree of holiday to her college friends, but for her they meant two extra hours in Mrs. Victor's employ. She had given an impatient and wholly unnecessary fling with her drying cloth, the only expression of her extreme disapproval of Mrs. Victor's words and manner that she had meant to allow herself, and had thereby knocked a pitcher against a nervous little gravy bowl of unique pattern, which had seized the occasion to roll from the tray and break in a dozen pieces. Then Mrs. Victor, who was in her Saturday condition of trying to do too many things at once, had exclaimed and mourned. Why was that particular gravy boat on the table at all? It should never be used save on special occasions. It was a very choice dish, a family piece that had been her grandmother's. She would rather have had the entire set of modern china broken than that one piece. Oh, match it, of course not. It was very old and therefore, naturally, the more valuable. She was very, very sorry, but there was no use in talking about it. Unfortunately, regrets would not mend broken china. Esther, who had been genuinely sorry, grew irritable over what she considered the two voluble regrets, but resisted the temptation to tell Mrs. Victor that she was no lady to make such an ado over an accident. She retired, however, into gloomy silence, and maintained it rigidly all the morning, despite the fact that Mrs. Victor evidently grew ashamed of her excessive regrets, and tried by pleasant words and considerate ways to atone. Esther resisted these so effectually that while she waited on table at luncheon she had the pleasure, between the courses, of overhearing Mrs. Victor say with a long-drawn sigh, I think sometimes I shall have to get rid of that girl in spite of her efficiency. She is so hopelessly ill-tempered, and of all forms of ill-temper I think I dread sullenness the most. I feel as though I had been spending the morning with a tombstone, and I worked with her all the while, too, and tried to make things as easy as I could. Esther was making as much clatter with the spoons she was rinsing as she could, but the lady's high-pitched voice reached her nevertheless and made her face burn, not the less because she realized that she was being well described. She had really been sullen. It angered as well as shamed her to have to admit it. No one, perhaps, even of those who knew her intimately, would have imagined that Esther Randall coveted a serene spirit, a mind capable of rising above the pettinesses of life, and showing by its calm that it dwelt in a higher atmosphere. Yet this was precisely what the girl admired in others and longed for in herself. One of Professor Langham's greatest charms in her eyes had been the calmness with which he could deal with petty annoyances and vexations such as would have driven her wild. Nothing seemed able to move him out of that atmosphere of superior calm. His very sarcasms were guilt-edged and graceful. Unconsciously to herself, Esther had been making him her model, and the fact that she had made no sort of progress toward that high calm, but seemed instead to grow more irritable, more easily moved by trifles, alternately made her angry or despairing. When her duties at Mrs. Victor's were done for that day, instead of treating herself to a half-holiday as she had planned, 
she took a street car to the city near at hand, and spent the hours in a weary search for a gravy bowl of peculiar pattern and design. Just when she had exhausted the great china stores, wholesale and retail, she found in a little out-of-the-way variety shop what at first view seemed to be the exact pattern, and close examination revealed only slight differences. It did not sweeten her temper to realize afterwards that the shrewd foreign shopkeeper saw her eagerness to buy and put up his price accordingly. The piece suddenly became very rare indeed, and cost much more than she had anticipated, but at any price it must be had, and she bore it home in triumph. But Mrs. Victor's spirit of propitiation had passed. She had had trials during the afternoon that Esther knew not of, and was not in an appreciative mood toward the girl who had sulked in her kitchen all the morning. She received the offering coldly, and without the slightest idea of the time and money which it represented. She assured Esther that she need not have undertaken anything of the kind. Such things could not be replaced. It was not the intrinsic value of the dish, but its associations handed down from the past. Of course a new dish, however much like the other, could never fill its place. Then she carefully pointed out the difference in the pattern. It was then that Esther quite lost her temper, and indulged in sarcasms that were neither gilt-edged nor graceful, and was bitterly ashamed of herself afterward. What wonder that her Sunday was the unrestful day it proved to be! Yet the evening ended in stern resolve. Under cover of the darkness, the girl shed a few miserable tears, then arose to the occasion. She would never give up her religion, though all the world should prove hypocritical, or superficial, or calmly indifferent, yet would not she. The belief of her father and mother should be her belief, their practice should be her practice, whether she derived any benefit from it all or not. To that end she went to her room and read five consecutive chapters in her Bible before she went to bed. End of chapter 8 Recording by Tricia G.